Hello there. Welcome back to Dear Clementine with me, Clementine Ford, your resident internet mum. I'm broadcasting to you today from Wurundjeri country, and remember, wherever you're listening from, know whose land you're on. Each week, I'm here with the advice that you need to hear. And the Dear Clementine inbox is overflowing with questions, so it's time we got to it. This week, we're talking pregnancy jealousy, cheating fathers, and teaching kids about gender equality. Dear Clementine, I'm 31 years old and single. Many of my friends have started having babies. When I find out, I can't help but feel sad. I can't help but think of how much our friendship will change. I think I want to have children one day, but I'm not sure that this feeling isn't jealousy. I'm also single, so this reality feels very far away from me, and I guess this also contributes to how I feel. Am I a bad friend for feeling sad about friends having babies? Oh, my dear precious heart. Firstly, you are not a bad friend for interrogating the feelings that you're having about your other friends and the progress that they're making in their life. Progress was a weird word. I'm going to replace that with uh, choices. The idea that somehow having a family is progressing forward is, I think, one of the problems that we experience as people in society in general, but particularly as cis women or people who can have babies, this idea that somehow our life is not fulfilled unless we have passed another human into the world. And so let's just kind of address that to start with. Obviously, when people hit their 30s, many of them start questioning whether or not they would like to reproduce. And sometimes they end up in relationships with people where they can make that choice or they can have that discussion. And sometimes they feel like, you know, their biological clock is ticking or whatever kind of euphemism we we want to give it, or they feel like um, the opportunity has passed them by. And I really feel like, again, that is a reflection of how limited society's view is of reproduction and the opportunities that we have. If you're 31 years old, and I'm, I'm going to assume most of your friends are also 31, they are in this sort of whirlpool of social expectations where they may, like you, also not really know whether or not they want to have a baby but feel like this is the time to start doing it. So they're kind of taking an each-way bet on whether or not that is something necessarily that they want. But maybe they feel like this is this is the time for me to do it because I actually have someone that I can do it with. This is a very cynical take, but a friend of mine always calls it the musical chairs of your 30s. So you're basically, you went to your 30s and you find that the music is getting near to stopping or perhaps has stopped already and you look around and basically whatever chair you're sitting on is the chair that you'll have a child with. Like I said, that's a really cynical view, but I think it's also the reality for a lot of people. They make the relationship work or fit into this kind of vision of what they think a family should be in order to get the baby And we need to radically reimagine what parenting looks like, as I said, so that you're not making choices about entering into relationships that may not serve you simply because you have a biological urge within you to become a parent. That biological urge can be listened to and can be honoured without needing to kind of fulfil all of these very superficial social expectations um, and and social prerogatives that allow for that to happen. So the feeling that you are having may be jealousy, it may not be. It may also be a tentative kind of fear or concern that you'll be left behind, which is very normal. I think that when your friends' lives change, and absolutely children without a doubt change people's lives, and every parent will say, we're not going to 
change how we live? You know, will the, will it make the baby adapt to us? And then they very quickly realise that, of course, not only is that not possible because babies run on instinct alone, but also they're tired all the time, their concerns are different, their capacity is different. And so necessarily the relationships and friendships they have with people around them who may or may not have children might change. And it takes a lot of effort on both people's part to weather that initial uh, disruption to lives. You know, and, and I think that sometimes one of the problems is that people who have babies expect, because they've they've kind of bought into this idea that it is a progress, that it is progressing forward, that somehow they have been, you know, like they've been given more social status because they've they've got a partner and they've got a baby. And so somehow they are not better than you, but they their life is different and more mature and more established and, and needs to be respected in a different way because they have a kid now. And that can be really grating on a friendship. And it's also, it's really disrespectful to the person who feels like their time is not being valued and their life is being dismissed and diminished because they don't they don't know what it's like to get up at 3am and change nappies. So it, it does require a lot of effort and love on the part of both people in a friendship slash relationship of that kind. Um, and I think if you're willing to do that and if your friends are willing to do that, then you may find that, yes, things will change with them, but you can come along for the ride with them and they can also remember what it was like before that to hang out with you. I don't think that it makes you a bad friend to have feelings about how your friends' lives are changing and to have some sensitivity around a very real insecurity that society wants you to feel, by the way, a very real insecurity that you will be left behind, but you will also not be able to make that choice for yourself one day. Roxanne Gay talks about the jealousies that we feel for our friends and how they're very normal feelings to have and how it's actually okay for you to express them to your diary or to another sympathetic ear and that oftentimes one of the the kindest things we can do is to not make that our friend's problem. That doesn't mean that you have to shield your feelings from your friend but just be aware if you do end up having that conversation that you have to have it in a kind and compassionate way, not just towards them, but towards yourself. And in doing that, you acknowledge, hey, I'm having these feelings. I understand that this is a me thing. I don't want you to feel like you have to change in any way. I don't don't want you to have to feel like I'm not essentially very happy for you. But I'm also really scared about what this means for our friendship and how it might change. And I'm really worried that I might be left behind. They may respond to that really badly. We can never predict how people will will meet our feelings towards them. They may be met with grace and they may be met with selfishness, but you are allowed to have that conversation and you're allowed to express yourself in a kind way. And it may just be the thing that initiates a new and necessary regular check-in with your friends whose lives are changing in this way so that you can both be heard, so that you can make it clear to them as well that, just because their life is moving in a different direction to yours doesn't mean that you don't still want to be friends with them and doesn't mean that you don't still want to be very much a part of their life. But it also means that your life is still valid. It's still complex. It's still challenging. And it it, it still remains every bit as worthy of respect as theirs does, even though they're living in this new reality now. 
you probably will lose some friends and that's sad and it will be heartbreaking in some ways, but it will also be okay in the long run. And you may gain stronger friendships with some of the people you know who are becoming parents and you may establish really beautiful relationships with their children as well that can grow and change in their own way. And regardless of whether or not you end up becoming a parent yourself, again, I stress that I feel like you need to give yourself space and and empathy and compassion about the speed at which that you feel that's running away from you. You're only 31. You've got so much time left and you can do it by yourself. You can be, uh, you know, one of the new breed of people who are radically changing the way that we imagine parenthood and families in this world. And that, and that can be a really powerful thing for you too. I would say, ultimately, step off the gas a little bit, go easy on yourself, write down your feelings in a diary or on a letter that you might read later on and acknowledge them, honour them, you know, don't don't diminish the importance of them. And go easy on yourself too because you're not a bad friend. If anything, the fact that you're asking this question shows how much of a good friend you are because you want to maintain the intimacy that you have with these women and you also want them to maintain the intimacy that they have with you. You understand that it's a two-way street. Finally, and this is to everyone listening, remember that every part of your life involves change and growth. And sometimes that necessarily means moving in opposite directions from people you have loved for a long time or who you have been friends with and who you think maybe you, you, you would have thought you'd be friends forever. But you can't anticipate what life will bring to you, the joys, the sadnesses, the opportunities, the, uh, the, the very different chances that you have to mould this one existence that you have been given. You are 31 years old, this beautiful questioner, and your 30s are not just about finding a partner and having a baby. They're actually about figuring out who you are. Your 20s are about learning your first steps through adulthood, your 30s are about figuring out and solidifying who you are, your 40s are about putting all that into practice, and your 50s, I think, I'm anticipating this, I'm hoping for it, are about saying fuck you to everyone who has a problem with it. So be excited about where your life is going, even if it's not the same place that your friends' lives are going. Be excited about the opportunities that you will continue to have as a person who is not tied down by babies, who's not tied down by a partnership, who doesn't have a fucking mortgage to worry about. There is so much richness in life waiting for you. You are allowed to have a different life to your friends and you're allowed to grow and change away from them as well. So be be really optimistic about all of the things that are coming your way because I guarantee you, you're going to love them. Dear Clementine, three years ago I was made aware that my father had been a serial cheater throughout my parents' entire relationship. I feel frustrated because my mother was and always has been the higher income earner in their relationship and it would have been very easy for her to leave him and live her best life with her children. My sister says it's all in the past and none of my business, so I shouldn't be upset that my father was willing to risk losing his family so many times and that it's cruel that I'm punishing him by refusing contact. What should I do? Am I overreacting? Let's talk about this word overreacting. Not just in the context of this question, but broadly speaking for all of our lives. We need, as women, to stop 
allowing the message that we're overreacting penetrate our brains. Men are rarely shamed for overreacting. And in fact, men overreact all the time. But men are rarely shamed for overreacting or gaslit into thinking that they're overreacting in the way that women are. And we're told that we're overreacting whenever we respond to circumstances where people have caused us harm or they've caused harm to the people that we love. And we've said, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. Oh, well, you're overreacting. I'm going to quote here from the excellent show, Dead to Me, which has Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini in it. It's on Netflix. Watch it. It's great. It's funny. Amazing. Two lead women. Everything we love. But there is a scene in it where Christina Applegate's teenage son accuses her of overreacting. And she says, let's be clear about one thing. I am not overreacting. I am having a reaction. My reaction is appropriate for me. And I mean, I'm paraphrasing that, but I I want to to really impart that message to everyone listening, that anytime someone tells you that you're overreacting, go back to that in your head, file it away in your brain right now, in the filing cabinet that says, how to tell if someone's gaslighting me. You are not overreacting when you are simply reacting to the way that other people are behaving. So to this person, your father, it transpires, has not only betrayed your mother throughout her entire marriage to him and humiliating her in front of certainly the people that he was cheating on her with and now in front of her family. And regardless of whether or not she has decided in her own life to tolerate that, to forgive him, to, you know, continue to allow this behaviour to happen, that, that, you know, that's her choice. But he has also betrayed you. You're his daughter and he's betrayed you in that he has demonstrated to you a complete lack of respect for your mother. One of the single most necessary things that a father needs to do for his children is to respect their mother. And I just will not compromise on that being a truth. He has disrespected your mother and in doing so, he has shown to you that he has no respect for your family, no respect for you as children, and he has forced you to not choose between them, but he has forced you to make a choice that in in choosing to forgive him or in choosing to accept him into your life, you, and I think you feel and understand this implicitly, you are letting your mother down. You're, you're joining in on the betrayal of her. You're co-signing the behaviour that has humiliated her for all of these years. And you are completely within your rights to say, I will not tolerate that. I will not forgive it. I will not allow him back into my life because that is a choice that I'm making out of love for my mother and also out of disdain for the way that my father has behaved. He may he may be your biological father. He may have been in your life, but that doesn't mean that you have to keep him in your life. We talk all the time on this show about boundaries and about effectively setting boundaries and about your right to have boundaries. Your sister, for a start, is also joining in on the betrayal of your mother. And she's also betraying you as well by forcing you to, or trying to force you to allow this man back into your life, by making you feel like you're the one with the emotional problem here. You can't get over it. You're being ridiculous. You're punishing him. You're overreacting. That's not her choice to make. This is your life. These are your feelings. And it's your relationship with your father, which, by the way, is completely separate to her relationship with your father. She can make all of those choices for herself if she wants to. If that feels like the best thing for her, if those are the boundaries that she's prepared to set for her, great. Good on her. Let her have that relationship with her father 
and let her navigate what that means for her relationship with her mother. But you're under no obligation to do that same thing. You're under no obligation to forgive a man for chronically disrespecting the woman who brought you into this world. And if he can't accept that, then maybe he needs to address the impact of what he's done. Maybe he needs to understand that he can't just behave the way that he wants with, you know, rampant disrespect for the women in his life and just get away with it. Your mother may have allowed him back into her life and she may have forgiven him, again, her choice, her boundaries. To an extent, I would also argue that that she is a product of her time where maybe she doesn't feel like she has any other options. Even though she does have the financial freedom to leave, maybe she has been so brainwashed or conditioned by the patriarchal assumption and, well, not assumption, the patriarchal insistence that women need men in our lives in order to be valid and in order to be valuable, that she's afraid of what it means to be a woman without a man. So she's prepared to put up with with all of this, um, the lies and the cheating, because that seems to be the price that she has to pay to maintain the illusion of worth in front of a world that says to women that if you're single, you're nothing. But you don't have to co-sign any of that. You don't have to support that. You don't have to be a part of the charade that everything is fine. You need to do what is right for you. And it sounds to me like you're, what is right for you is to cut off contact with your father, at least for the interim period where he is seemingly unwilling to apologise sincerely for his behaviour and to truly acknowledge the betrayal that he has caused to multiple people in this family. And don't forget as well that what he's demonstrated to you is, and and this is part of the betrayal, what he's demonstrated to you is that you can't trust men. You can't trust your own father who is supposed to love you and is supposed to model respect for women, for you, his daughter. I mean, obviously we know that that's that's kind of a, an illusion. There are a lot of men who talk about being, you know, respectful fathers of daughters who do not respect women. But he has distinctly broken that bond and he's shown you that even in a relationship where someone has children with you, where they give their life to you, where they financially support you as your mother has done for him, that that is not enough to garner the basic respect of not engaging in you know, repeated and chronic infidelity. So honestly, fuck him. And I'm on your side with this. And I think that you should tell your sister to back off. Repeat to her again that if this is the boundary that you're willing to set with him, that's fine. But that's your boundary and it has nothing to do with me. And then you say to her, my boundaries with with him is different. And I'm setting a boundary for you now. That if you insist on talking about this with me and trying to make me feel bad about it, if you insist on trying to make me change my mind, then I will stop having communication with you as well, or I will at least um, draw back from you. And you maybe say to her, our boundary now is that we don't discuss this. If you want to have a relationship with me, that is the deal. We are not talking about this man who is biologically both of our fathers, uh, and we're not talking about your feeling that I am not, you know, I'm not forgiving him or I'm I'm overreacting or I need to give him another chance because that's just simply not on the conversational table. And that's all there is to it. Dear Clementine, recently my son, who is four, came home from preschool with a new chant he learnt. Girls are weak, chuck them in the creek. 
I'm trying to explain to him why this is a harmful thing to say, but I'm having trouble getting him to understand it. Any advice? As the mother of a five-year-old boy, I feel this on a very, very deep level. There is a fear that you have as a parent, particularly when you are, you know, like I am, very conscious of how patriarchy shapes all children and co-opts them into expressing patriarchy before they can even really understand what this gas is that we're all kind of breathing in every day, long before they understand it, obviously. It co-ops them into expressing all of the parts of it that will later on inform their ideas about the gender dynamic and about, you know, gender roles and weakness in women and strength in men and this chant, girls are weak, chuck them in the creek, and I know that the next part of that is boys are strong like King Kong, is something that people have been you know, kids have been saying on the playground for decades. I think I heard it when I was a kid. And it's really scary because you can have all of the best laid plans at home to have a gender equal household, to have constant ongoing discussions with your children, but you put them out into the world and you begin the socialization that starts in the school ground and you essentially just have to kind of cross your fingers that they will be open to the conversations that you want to keep having with them as they go through that adolescence. And it's not always guaranteed to work because the way that humanity works is that the the pack is so convincing. And the way that patriarchy in particular works is by teaching little boys that solidarity with each other is where power lies, that they need to be in consort with each other. They need to always support other boys and men as a pack. That is how patriarchy codifies itself with boys. But conversely, teaches little girls that they need to be wary of each other in order to have favour with patriarchy. It's not as obvious a message when little girls are in preschool or kindergarten or even primary school because the messaging is slightly different. We have this illusion of power in little girls. We want them to grow up strong. We want them to be able to express themselves. We want them to have friends who are other girls. But they learn very quickly that if you're a girl who supports and sides with other girls the way that boys support and side with other boys, you'll be seen as a threat and you'll be made to feel um, like a like you're colluding in some way. You know, I talk about this idea of like colluding with other girls is – you know, women, all women together may be a coven and they be maybe working to bring men down. So on the one hand, you could say that, that chants like girls a week, chuck them in the creek are kind of just sort of normal kindergarten practice. They're normal schoolyard things. They're not that big a deal. And that may be true on individual levels, but they are actually, broadly speaking, a fairly big deal when you're talking about what children are learning to understand about how the world works and about their own place in it. The repeated claim that girls are weak in comparison to boys is not just something that school kids say to each other. It's obviously an underlying view that people have about women in the world, that women are weaker than men, that women are less capable of leadership roles, that we're less capable of rationality, that we somehow need men to protect us. And obviously the unspoken part of that is from other men. We need men to protect us because we can't protect ourselves because we are 
basically just these flibbity gibbets that kind of float through life and have nothing to contribute other than how we look and how we make men feel and that we should be very, very, very grateful that they are so nice to us because the flip side of that is that they could be really mean if they wanted to be. Having those conversations with kids isn't necessarily about sitting down and and explaining the entire history of patriarchy to them because, as you've found with your son, they just simply won't get it. They don't understand why a chant that for them is fun and that is kind of received in this sort of tit-for-tat way that happens on the school ground, they can't understand that that is part of something much bigger. So instead of trying to address the entirety of it, you break it down into smaller, bite-sized chunks. So maybe in the case of your son, start by saying to him, that's a funny chant. What do you think it means? And see where he goes with that and allow that to lead the, the conversation. And if he says something about girls being weak or it's funny because girls are weak or whatever, you say, oh, I reckon girls are pretty strong. Why do you think that girls are weak? What do you think it is about girls that make them weak? And then he might say, you know, this, that, the other. In my experience, when I've had these conversations with my son, by the way, there is a, a creeping note of not defensiveness in the way that he tries to explain where his thoughts are at with it, but it sounds a little bit like defensiveness. I think what it actually is is an uncertainty that they're so confident when they're at school and they're being, you know, fed these messages from their friends and their peers, which are very compelling. And of course they want to fit in and they feel uncertain now because they're at home in their safe environment with their mum, who they love and trust and who takes care of them and who they definitely know is not weak. And they're suddenly being made to feel like, well, maybe what I'm learning at school is not right, but also if I accept that it's not right, then that means that maybe my friends won't like me and that's kind of scary. So there's a little bit of uncertainty around the way that they have these conversations, which can, as I said, come across as as defensiveness. So with that in mind, I think it's really important to not be combative about how you have these conversations, to be really curious about them, to gently step through them and ask them to kind of show you through their landscape what it is that they're thinking, why are they saying these things, um, offer them alternative views. You know, oh, well, mummy's a girl and I don't think I'm weak. I'm pretty strong, I reckon. Look, I can lift this up and I can. I had you and, and, I, and I take care of the house here and I make nice food for you to eat and I, I feel like that's pretty strong stuff. Do you think that mummy's strong? And they'll probably say yes to that. And then if you have a man in your child's life, whether or not that is as a a partner or as an involved father or an uncle or a grandfather or a friend, whoever it may be, you need to get them to reinforce the message. You need to get them to say, you know, these are just silly chants that you'll hear people saying on the school ground. You'll you'll hear your mate saying them, but it's actually pretty ridiculous. And, you know, only, only silly people think those things and, and only, only someone who doesn't really understand how strong girls and women are would say something like that. And it's pretty mean really. And you get it, you get the man, the senior male figure in their life to reinforce what the woman is saying to them. And yes, we can say it's shit that we need to get men to reinforce messages to boys. Fine. That it is shit, but it also is important because they need to understand that other men don't think the way that their peers think, that the men they admire and respect and who they look to as being strong figures challenge those messages that they're hearing at school and they support and back up 
the views of the women in their life and they respect them, which kind of goes back to the question that we were talking about before this, about the the most important thing men being able to do for the mothers of children is respect them, to show those children how deeply they value the care and the abilities and the capacity of those women and not just respect them but admire them and benefit from them and see those women as being really strong and you know powerful and and good at leading the way if boys are taught from a very young age to see girls and women as leaders as naturally born leaders in the same way that they are automatically taught that boys and men are naturally born leaders, then we can start to cut through some of that patriarchal messaging that has been so successful for millennia. Obviously, we can't change it in a year. We may not even be able to fully change it in your child's lifetime, but we are planting seeds in them that they will go on to grow, that they will go on to propagate in their own lives, messages that they will pass on. And we are disrupting patriarchy and its intentions in the best way possible, which is by starting with the next generation. So to recap all of that, I would suggest not responding in a combative way. I would suggest being curious about why he thinks these things, where's it coming from, gently challenging it, and then continuing to challenge it in everything that you do and say to have it be reinforced by the men in his life and to just push back every time something like this comes up and to remind him of the complexities of life and the complexities of women and also to really, I guess, ultimately make it very clear to him that having those views is not only wrong, just simply factually wrong, but also really small-minded. It's really silly. The last thing that I'll say is for you as a mother and for any parent who's listening is that this is never just a one-off conversation and it's never just a conversation that happens when it needs to happen. This is a conversation that is ongoing in your home, in your relationship with your child. In fact, think of your relationship with your child as a long-running ongoing, constant conversation that has many nuances, many approaches, and requires a lot of care and attention to detail. So you have this conversation about this schoolyard behaviour, but you keep having the conversation in broader ways in terms of how you model gender dynamics at home, in terms of how you speak about women in your home, in terms of how you challenge each other and how you are prepared to be challenged yourself. And you accept that it is not a problem that will be fixed overnight. And it, it, it is unfortunately a conversation that you will be having with your child for at least the next 15 years, hopefully beyond that but ultimately one in which you are showing them how they can go out and have these conversations with other people. You're modelling what that conversation looks like and you are ex- you're exhibiting a way of being that will become second nature to them and will hopefully at some point, if not completely re- replace the gas of patriarchy that they're breathing in every day, at least be a very strong competitor for it. And that's about all we have time for this week. Thank you again for all of your questions and feedback. I really appreciate it. And remember, if you've got a question, you can hop on Instagram and send me a DM or reply to my stories. Alternatively, you can send an email to dearclementine at novapodcasts.com.au. In the meantime, I hope this podcast has found you well. 
Yours sincerely, Clementine.